Hello and welcome to the Nationals Business Podcast. I'm Andy Scott and we are coming from Abu Dhabi. I'm joined by Mustafa Al-Rawi, the business editor. As the mercury touches 45 degrees here in the capital, so it seems the housing market is heating up. Dubai Land Department released figures this week suggesting that the number of transactions is on the move. Has Dubai's and the UAE's housing market reached its bottom and people now seeing value in the market? What do you think, Mustafa? Andy, I'm ready to call the bottom of the market. We've been talking about it for a while now, about where, particularly Dubai. Let's let's talk about Dubai specifically rather than um, any other parts of, of the property sector. Um, Lucy Barnard's story this morning in the paper talking about the latest data from ReadIn analysed by Lux Habitat that shows that after something like seven successive quarters of um, you know declining uh, sales and uh, the value of those sales, we've seen a pickup now um, in the last, well, since the low, the two-year low at the end of 2015. So the last two quarters have been up. And in fact, the second quarter was double in terms of both sales and the value of those sales compared to the low at the end of last year. So I'm not saying we're about to rocket anytime soon, but certainly the data indicates, if you're willing to be optimistic, and I am, that perhaps we're on the way up again. So um, now there's a term called a dead cap bounce, uh, which suggests it's usually to do with the stock market. When uh, shares plummet, people think there has been a bottom. So people start buying into the market again. You see a raise in those shares. And then all of a sudden, that optimistic outlook dissipates and all of a sudden it plummets again. You don't believe that's a possibility? Well, first of all, these analysts are a morbid lot. You know, <laughs> dead cat bounce and everything. I'm sure they could have come up with something less strange than that. I think that. it's because dead cats don't bounce. I pref- they don't, exactly. But why a dead cat? Any, a lot of the brick doesn't bounce. Um, let's say it's a bear market rally, which it, which it could be. Because we have been in a bear market for some time. And, you know, at the first sign of an upswing, everyone piles in, but then the fundamentals aren't there. But if we look at other reporting that we've done in the last couple of weeks, uh, the, the brokers like JLL have said, look, you know, we were calling a rebound. We're saying perhaps the rebound is six months later now that Brexit has happened because that creates a lot of pressure on the British investors who are a large part of the uh, the fabric of investment in property in the sector. Um, but apart from that, the fundamentals haven't haven't changed. Um, you know, okay, the persistence of a strong dollar, you know, perhaps a bit of, of a flight to, to sort of safer investments. But if you look at the medium to long term, that's still quite a big draw. So Expo 2020, the overall rising population in Dubai and the wider UAE, the fact that really, you know, if you talk about Saudi diversifying and you know increasing wealth of their population, there's still a limited number of areas in which you can put your money. One of those is Dubai property. It's resilient. It's proven. And it shows that, you know, if you hold on long enough, it'll come back up. Well, you say resilient, although there's a lot of people who would argue with that um, sentiment. I saw yesterday uh, numbers, again from the DLD, suggesting that the biggest investors from nationality is actually the Emiratis, uh, coming in around $14 billion, I thought, sorry, $14 billion dirhams worth in the last six months. Uh, that's almost double any other nation. Uh, um, I think uh, the UK was about $7 billion and the GCC was also about $7 billion. That suggests to me that uh, there is a lot of uh, home optimism, 
possibly not the, the, that, that surge of international interest, which the top line suggests there is. Okay, so we're seeing a lot of Emiratis buying property. They're bulk of buyers, which is a good sign, obviously, because it's their home market, so they're keeping their money here. Then the first international category is Indian nationals. So that's almost a home category, if you think about the, the yeah. population spread in the UAE, particularly Dubai, Northern Emirates. So again, you know, that's where they're putting their money. So it's either a case of they've got nowhere else to put it, except the except Dubai property market, or they actually believe in it. Either way, it's got to be a bullish sign. I think it's also a case that there's value in the market. And that's what I was actually, I think, is a the real um, uh, underlying sentiment of this is that we know prices got out of hand in Dubai and a lot of people got their fingers burnt. I think people now realize that this is a real opportunity. Well, let me point you to the last quote of your story, Andy, on the on the data, which was from um, the uh, broker at Lux Habitat, Paul Clark, who says that um, the biggest absence on the list of investors are the Russians. And at one point, they owned at least 80 percent on Palm Jumeirah. Now, that might be a sort of finger in the air statistic, but it's probably not far off. And so we've seen a real change in the in the, the breakdown of investors, which is that's the resilience I'm talking about. So if we've got They've got problems in Russia economically. They're political problems. That it's it's scaling back some of their investment. You know, then we we see other nationalities stepping in. And we, you know, I've always heard anecdotally that worst case scenario is you know Dubai property prices drop to four, five, six hundred dirhams a square foot. There will always be big investors that come in to buy stuff up. So there's always going to be interest there. And if you th- if you think that in the end there's always going to be a buyer, then your money is you know fairly safe. Although I did see, uh, and I didn't put it in the story, but Paul also said to me, he said, what we have seen is a reaction to Brexit from UK owners of property here who now see it's better to hold, have their dirhams. They're willing to sell their property at a, a titular, titular loss because they can make it back in sterling. So they, oh, it's a bit of an arbitrage opportunity. So they sell here, buy there, and you know they're doing better at the moment because of the swing, yeah, the you know, whatever, 10, 20, 30% that it has been. And you know perhaps they take a mortgage out in the UK and they envisage for the next two years that their mortgage payments will continue to get cheaper because nobody really knows what's going to happen with regards to Britain leaving the European Union. It will be a drawn out process. And uncertainty was the only thing we're certain of. Excuse that <laughs> contradiction. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Let me also talk. Um, There's been uh, some movement today for SMEs, which has been one of the main drivers of the UAE's economy. One of the biggest problems with SMEs has been the fact of cash, getting that that, that cash line, making sure it, 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 it keeps coming through. And one can be left with a lot of debts and have a lot of money supposedly coming in and not always being able to manage your other um, outgoings. This has been a huge problem here and led to people fleeing the country. There's been a move to change that, hasn't there? Well, there was some news out from the, uh, I think it was the Ministry of Labour yesterday or the Ministry of Emiratization, uh, forgive me, naturalization, emiratization. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was Sakhar Gobash, um, the minister there, who said that they would remove this requirement for SMEs to, um, you know, keep a certain amount of money in the bank 
um, as a guarantee. And many business owners have been saying that some of the rules in place here, um, it's a vibrant economy, of course, and they're growing and they're looking to build their businesses. But some of the rules were, were, were dampening their chances of success, particularly in a slowing economy. Now, you know, everybody knows that the SME um, sector is the most vulnerable, if you like, to a downturn. And they've been one of the hardest hit from the drop in oil prices over the last two years as it's filtered down throughout the economy. And the IMF on Friday, um, through one of their, their latest update on this region and the global outlook, um, we're talking about the importance of helping SMEs in the UAE to continue growth. And Dania Saadi had an interview with Masoud Ahmed from the IMF over the weekend that, we, again, was talking about the importance of reforms, helping businesses out. Now, the big thing on the horizon everyone's waiting for, which touches on what you were talking about, Andy, is the bankruptcy law. If that comes through, and then the second thing is the investment law of reducing the need in many sectors for you to have 100% ownership or 51% ownership, forgive me, for uh, with a local partner, that would ease up a lot of the restrictions that business owners are feeling here. But we've been waiting for these laws for a long time. It's called the company's law is the wider term, isn't it? Which Well, it's now in the investment law. It was the company's ah, okay. law. It's been kicked into the investment law. And, then, and you know, the bankruptcy part of it is very important because, you know, there is inherent risk in starting your own business. And if you know that it's going to land you in jail and potentially destroy your family, you're less likely to do it. And it leads into something else as well. The amount of letters we've had for the debt panel of people who found themselves in crippling debt for a number of reasons, where one of the main factors has been, I invested in a business and it went wrong and it went south. Now, so there's two issues here. One is when it does go wrong, which it can go wrong and it will go wrong, what is, what is the situation for you? What are, the, what are the consequences? But also, it's not been easy to raise finance. So they've been going and getting personal loans to invest in businesses, which is, which is nuts. Well, that's that's one of the problems here, that it is a nascent uh, industry of SMEs, if you like. Uh, I know there has been a lot of angel investors now being set up uh, and VCs, venture capitalists, willing to and looking for opportunity, especially amongst the tech businesses here. However, there is still that fear because of this lack of a bankruptcy law, which means that you can't go into Chapter 11, put things to one side, keep your business running while your uh, your profits and losses are worked out and who owes what and uh, the, who's the creditors and who's the, uh, the, the debtors. Until that is worked out, I'm not sure that this, uh, it, it seems to be a lip service almost to, to, to what's needed. Look, people want to start businesses. I mean, uh, another aspect of our coverage, not just the debt panel, but also our SME profiles on a weekly basis, we must be, you know, close to have been profiled 100 small and medium enterprises in, in this country who are all coming up with great ideas. These are all clever people, talented people, all wanting to, to run their business here, different nationalities, Emiratis, different expats, you know, everyone who believes in this market, they believe in the UAE, they believe in the wider Gulf. Now, obviously, legislation is a little bit behind because that legislation takes a long time to put into place but i think in the meantime you look at the banks you look at some of the institutions that are out there some of the government backed bodies we can do more to support the growth of this sector we can put more mechanisms in place to get us through until the legislation is passed we're probably not doing enough collectively and that's what the imf is saying and that's perhaps what you know this this decision by um, the government to remove the bank charges at this point by decree um, the bank guarantee, sorry, by decree, is probably a halfway house to the full-on legislation that we're talking about. That's definitely true. Although, and I'm glad you mentioned the debt uh, panel, which we, we've been running here for a couple of months now, I believe. Um, 
it's a it's a, a panel of four um, uh, creditors, bankers, uh, people who understand the the, the 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 problems that people can face uh, when they run up personal debt here, and just what are the options if. And I've been reading quite a few of the, uh, the the articles that have been coming out, and, and that people have fourteen credit cards, three personal loans, have a monthly uh, income of ten thousand dirhams, and yet and a debt of over seven hundred thousand dirhams is what we covered this week. It seems though there is still no one body that one can go to and say, "What do I do?" It seems to be piecemeal. One has to go to every bank, every credit card, and try and work it out individually, which seems, and again, and there's a lot of it to do with emotional distress. People, and the letters I've read, suggesting you know, they would rather lose their lives. They're embarrassed to talk to their families. They're embarrassed to tell exactly the sort of distress they're in. And there really doesn't seem to be um, an obvious route out of it. Well, I mean, one of the reasons why we've been doing this coverage now, because obviously, you know, personal debt, company debt has been an issue for a while, um, is because the credit bureau came in and was able to introduce some much needed transparency into the uh, lending sector. And as you mentioned, the last poor guy who who wrote in um, said that he had loans with 14 institutions. Now, my guess is they're learning about this from reading the article like we are. (laughs) Yes. And they're probably several of those institutions are quite surprised that they're not the only ones with a claim on this guy. Now, that was why the, the credit bureau has been introduced, because until then, there was no system, no credit check system to understand. Abdelaziz al the CEO of Mashrek Bank, and also the head of the Banks Federation, said this is exactly what would happen. We'll see for maybe six months a situation where once the picture becomes clear, Certain people won't be able to borrow. Certain uh, uh, individuals, companies will be in trouble because the clear picture arrives. Now, the flip side of that is, okay, they've realized now they're in trouble. They can't go and borrow more because everyone knows what's happening. What happens now to those people caught between, you know, the rock and the hard place? Um, You know, going forward, we're hoping that all this coverage we're doing of the debt panel is going to prevent other people becoming victims of this sort of, and I think it's a sickness, this sickness of debt and taking on too much of it and taking on more of it than you actually need. How much of this stuff that you're, you're, you're taking out is actually for need versus want or versus what you feel you've got to do? Um, you know, and the banks have their role to play in it, of course. Um, you know, it takes two. Um, but, you know, we really need a mechanism, again, to help these poor souls out that are stuck in between where, who cannot turn anywhere for what seems to be a solution. And they're at their lowest ebb. Some of them are saying, you know, maybe I take my life. That's that's probably, you know, the, the the most extreme case that we've got where two or three people are talking about this. But there are a lot of people also saying that I could run out of the country, but I'm not going to. So there are many people saying I want to stay and fix it. At some point, we know institutions are going to step up and, and solve this problem and they're going to help people out. So we're optimistic that this is just a really difficult part of what is ultimately a very healthy and productive process. That's true. And I think um, I think that the, the, uh, it's a rather somber note. So let's just have one last uh, little story. Which is as long slight- as it's not about animals. No, it's, it's not Pokemon, don't worry. It's, it's slightly more uplifting. It's about sellanycar.com. I wrote a piece on it last week. Sergei Yeltsin is a, a very, um, um, let's say, active entrepreneur here. Um, put together sellanycar.com, which involves, it's basically a technology play to sell 
literally any car within 30 minutes. He guarantees he will buy your car. What he does, and what he's now done, is teamed up, and he wouldn't give me the names of the, the, the dealers because he'd signed an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement with them. But the fact is that he says, if you go to, and this is not, I'm not saying Mercedes have bought into this, but if you drive to a Mercedes garage in your Toyota Corolla, there is no reason for them to buy your Toyota Corolla unless you're going to buy another Mercedes, which is, let's just say, unlikely. However, they have now teamed up with Sell Any, Dick Any Car, and they are willing to use his technology, which means they go through a vehicle um, standards test, which takes 12 minutes. And then it goes on an 18-minute auction, live auction, with over 2,000 dealers. And they all bar uh, barter for that car. And you find out within 18 minutes how much your car is worth or how much someone is willing to pay for or it. Or how little it's worth. Or how little it's, it's worth. probably more likely. But, either way, but I mean, it's a th you know, over 2,000 dealers. And he said, you know, people can say if they know that someone who needs a Toyota Corolla and they know they can sell it, then obviously they will, auction, they will buy, offer a little bit more. You do, you're, you do not have to buy this, by the way. You don't have to take, this, you don't have to take what they offer. But no, the I mean, this is the beginning of, I mean, they're not the only ones in the market doing this. I mean, and this, these services popped up, I think, as a natural byproduct of a softening uh, second-hand car market. It was it was almost created by the by the dealers because they did so many good deals on new cars that people had no reason to go and buy old cars. So you had a flood of second-hand cars onto the market for people trading up. Then we had the slowdown of the economy, or at least a pickup in the slowdown. Again, excuse that contradiction. Is that a dead and then, Yes, <coughs> it's a dead something. Um, and then no one's buying any cars. And so what you've got is a situation where literally it's a, it's a cold market out there. So, you know, good luck to them. But you know, if this gets things going. It's a cold market, by the way. No, not what, he said he is now, they have bought, they are the <gasps> biggest used car buyer in the country after only three years. That's impressive. That's how we'll leave it. I like to leave on an impressive note. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.